the good, the bad, and the Boucherian. The good, the bad, and the Boucherian. And folks, you're listening to the good, the bad, and the Boucherian. What happens in my house, there was a streetlight right outside my my window. Some nights when the lights would go off, like it's very common in Eastlands for lights to go off or the or no water. So that was very common. And I was reading and you know, I would open the curtains and and just you know start reading using the street light. You mm-hmm. see, having been born in the you know in Eastlands, I didn't want to remain in Eastlands. Mm-hmm. I wanted something better for me. And uh, the only opportunity was going to be via education. Down syndrome child. No, you say that child has Down syndrome. It is a child first, then the Mm. Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that person first, then they they become people. They, They begin to develop the empathy because they are now something that you can relate to or someone that you can relate to mm-hmm. you know so even just it doesn't even have to be disability it has to be like even poor children you know how they are perceived they they're mm-hmm. just poor but we don't see the child we see the poverty before the child yes yes so that particular child almost has no hope It's your boy, Billy, and we're back with another episode. Hope you guys are keeping well, keeping safe amidst the pandemic, and things are going well on your side as they are on mine. And today, my guest in studio is Dr. Lucy Gitonga, a professor of special education, a published author. She has a doctor of philosophy in special education, a master's in severe and profound disabilities. And today, we'll be talking a lot about all the things she does things she's done as an educator and some of the things she'd love to see us do in Kenya as she's currently in the United States. She also has interest in special needs to children and refugees. So she's going to tell us a bit more about that. So Dr. Lucy, hi, how are you doing today? Hi, how are you? I'm good. You? I'm fine. Thank you. How has the going been? <laughs> trying to, I'm trying to get ready with the, the syllabi for my courses in the university level. Mm-hmm. That's been a lot of work, yes. So you're not enjoying yeah. your summer? I did enjoy my summers. Remember, I came over Kenya and then, of course, I the, the remaining part of the summer, which was the whole of July, I was just working. Mm-hmm. Yes. Does it get does the work get easier? Do you have to get a new syllabus every year? Yes, it's going to get easier if I can have the same courses. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they give you courses across the board. Um mm-hmm. there are times that I have similar courses, like for instance in the summer I'd have like an assessment course. Same, but sometimes we change the text. So that means mm-hmm. I have to do it. Oh my goodness. 
<laughs> so even before I get there, let's start from the beginning yeah. where yes, before even you relocated to Kenya, did you know that your life would lead relocated from Kenya? Did you know that your mm-hmm. life would lead to where you are today? Did you ever think you'd become a doctor, hold a doctorate? What especially when you let's even start from high school, how was your upbringing like and how was all of that like? Oh, okay. Well, I was raised in Jericho um, mm-hmm. and I used to walk to school. You know, all those stories that the old people always tell. They are true, though. Very true that, stories. Tell us about it. So even tell I can hear. So um, usually when I, when I was young, we had to walk to school and we had to gather ourselves and groups of people and walk together. Um some days you know you come home for lunch and you just don't really have uh, you know lunch like they do have now like the children now can go home for lunch or can have lunch at school so you know so it was kind of tough but also I think you know we also formed a lot of friendships along the way because we used to Mm -hmm. walk together and talk together um School was very tough, like I always tell my children. Uh, we had to work really, really hard. Mm-hmm. We had to work really, really hard. And um, we had to maintain a certain grade. So that was expected of us. And I think for me, naturally, I developed my own systematic way of doing things. My parents uh-huh. were very, very tough, you know, in terms of you have to maintain this grade, etc. But I had very high standards for myself. Mm-hmm. And I always used to believe I am going to be what I want to be, in spite mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. In spite mm-hmm. of. And I remember in those days, we didn't have a library. Um, the closest library was Macmillan Library, and the books were so old, and they were just smelling so old. Mm-hmm. But I would go and I collect the books and I read them at home. So everybody would say, "Oh, she's always reading something, and she's always laughing." My, I remember my siblings would always say, "She's always laughing," <laughs> you know, about something that she don't even know what she's doing. <laughs> so, <that> was, <laughs> There was a lot of jokes about me. And I remember I would go to Shags. Um, every Christmas we had to go to Shags, you know. And we would go to Shags and my I would be given the duty of watching or looking after the, the goats and the sheep. Mm-hmm. And I remember several times I lost the sheep and the goats because <laughs> I was reading a book and I look up and they were all gone. <laughs> Otherwise, somebody else's farm. (laughs) So I, you know, at the very beginning, what I wanted to do, and I, uh, you know, and I put the best foot forward. So even though I, um, when I finished my primary school, I was the top three, one of the top three. And I went ahead to... mm -hmm, and that was the first time I went ahead to join a school on the other side of the highway. So, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I went over there and it was exciting, but it was a very new experience for me. 
So uh -huh. within the first year, the school was not a boarding school. Then eventually, it was it became one of the top boarding schools. So I was on I was only able to get onto. I would have to take a matatu like and then walk almost a mile to the school because I wasn't close mm -hmm. by. Came full fledged, you know, boarding school. Um, as a you know, as a one of the top schools, then I was able to attend the school and go into the boarding session. So that uh -huh. was uh, I was determined, and and in spite of the fact that sometimes when we were growing up, you know, we didn't have electricity, and I would use the street lights. <laughs> to, no way! So, Are you serious? Yeah, I'm totally serious. So what happens that in my house? There was a street light right outside my my window. So some nights when the lights would go off, like it's very common in Eastlands for lights to go off or the or no water. So that was very common. And I was reading and you know, I would open the curtains and and just you know start reading using the street light. That is if mm -hmm. I didn't have <laughs> if I if if I had not um my some some kind of torch from my dad or my mom somewhere. So mm -hmm. I had that interest since I was very young. Even when I came over here, that was the motivating factor. I said I wanted to come here to the United States, of course, to have a better life for my children as well as my husband and I, but um, to be able to get into educational field that I wanted to get into and exist. Mm -hmm. And um and and that's that's what it was all about. But yes, I did work very hard. <laughs> I did work very hard. <laughs> and even with that you talked about you held yourself to a high standard. And I realized that a lot of children these days are given that push from their parents. And for you, yes. you've said your parents didn't give you that much pressure, but it just came from your internal drive. So where did this drive come from? Why Weren't you just like everyone else who would just go to school because your parents are taking you to school, but you always wanted to go the extra mile? What, where did that determination come from? And I believe that determination comes from the fact that um, I wanted a better life for myself. You mm -hmm. see, having been born in the, you know, in Iceland, I didn't want to remain in Iceland. Mm -hmm. I wanted something better for me. And uh, the only opportunity was going to be via education. So I'm, that's why I'm a firm believer that education opens doors. Mm -hmm. And it may sound like a cliche, but it is not. Because, because of the education, then doors that you thought were not going to open actually open. Because they're no longer seeing you as that, you know, that child from Islands, where there was a lot of, you know, all kinds of stuff were going on those years. Um, they see you as someone who is within the education, educational you know, realm of other people who are making it. So I mm -hmm. wanted to give myself a chance to make it. But I also think I had that intrinsic value within me because I've always loved reading. I've always loved challenging myself in spite uh -huh. of and even to this day, I'm still reading. I always challenge myself to, you know, to work on something bigger than myself. And that mm -hmm. is very interesting. But I know the overall, you know, concepts of education being 
I mean, being an opportunity for you to find other pathways. That's why this meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And someone even talked about and said education is an equalizer. Yes, it is an equalizer. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. only financial basis an issue, but also the experiences that come with that are limited. So, for instance, let's say mm-hmm. you you, um, and I'm going to give myself you a, a really good example of I wrote a lot and I was a very good writer. But I was only a good writer because I found in the library and I would read these books constantly. So I had a vision of a different world. Mm-hmm. You don't read, then you think your world is just what you see. Mm-hmm. But you open up your avenues and you open up your world. So in my yeah. brain, as I read, you know, seated watching as the goats disappeared into somebody's farm, I would imagine mm-hmm. myself in that world. Mm-hmm. So let's say the story was, you know, I was reading a story about this adventure of this, you know, kids going through California or whatever they were going through. I would put myself in it. Uh-huh. As experienced, it was like a movie going on in my mind. So that's why it was exciting for me to read and encounter different things. And even when I approached reading or working in school, I saw it as an adventure. So I would go in and I was like, okay, how, how can I you know, understand this to the best of ability from my own perspective? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the fact that I was, you know, I had an opportunity to go get those books and I would walk to the library that was pretty far. And I remember the librarian used to look at me and wonder, where are you taking these books? Like reading Little Women, <laughs> Pride and Prejudice. I don't even know what they're all about, but I would read them. Uh-huh. <laughs> the librarian used to see me coming through every, after every two weeks. I said, okay, how many books do you want to take this time? And I would always take about <laughs> five books or six books. <laughs> and and I, I think they used to think that was really strange. But that allowed me to go to another world mm. and write about that other world. Know that that other world exists. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, with a lot of um, kids who come from, you know, low-income areas, the ghettos and everywhere else, that's the only world they know. Some yeah. of them have never gone by or, or past Uhuru Highway to the other side. Mm-hmm. So they don't know that exposure. And because they don't know that exposure and they don't know that another world like that exists that has beautiful houses and beautiful offices and, you know, whatever else that comes to the other side of the, you know, of the highway, then they don't know what to aspire for. Mm, mm. And that is really critical because it's part of what we call lived experiences your lived ex- experiences can sometimes limit you or extend mm-hmm. you. Mm, so yeah. they're really important. So, so for instance, I, you know, I, I, I used to say uh, when we were, you know, when I was in elementary school, or, you know, primary school, um, we never used to go for field trips. And I remember one time, the only one field trip that we went to was to Mombasa. 
And, you know, they stuffed us all in a big, huge bus and sent us to Mombasa. And mm -hmm. I remember we, where we slept, because that is very vivid in my mind, even as old as I am now. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I remember that where we slept was so hot because it was like a school, like a, like a hall, and it was hot and there were centipedes. So my experience of Mombasa was not the experience that I would probably encounter at Sarova, you know, hotel. Yeah. It, was, it was miserable. So <laughs> in that aspect, Mombasa did not seem a very enticing place to be. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm a firm believer that experiences are critical. They give an opportunity to grow and to see and to, and to dream. Yes. Because we know that dream is achievable. Mm. Yes. So even with you talking about you knew education would open doors, were you sure what, do you, in your mind, do you know what these doors were or what you want these doors to be for you? Um, at that time, I wasn't sure, but I mm -hmm. knew that if I read, I would go to a good boarding school. I have to walk to school. I knew at the back of my mind, I wanted to go to a good boarding school and I wanted to wear a very nice uniform. And, and you know, I wanted to be able to, to you know, to stay in school and, and have maybe light all the time, you know, because mm -hmm. sometimes I didn't have light. So there, there were limited visions at that time. Uh -huh. But when I moved over to the secondary level, now I knew I wanted to go to university. First one in my generation, and I have been a trailblazer since, because I've been uh -huh. the only one who ever went to university. Um, in my neighborhood, I guess I'm the only one who has a PhD to this day. Uh, maybe somebody else has come up in a later age, but I, not that I know of right now. But those are the the issues, you know, those are the Know, concepts that I had in mind that I wanted to be something better and of value to my community. Yeah. And I only knew that was only going to happen if I was going to get into a good university. Mm -hmm. yes. So you enter university. So let's, what happens in university? <laughs> in university? Oh, you really want to know my chief. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, went, <laughs> I went to Moy University. Mm -hmm. First, very far away. I have I had never been farther than Nyeri. So that was really a very difficult journey. And I had to go all the way by myself and find out the place. And and I remember going into this beautiful Moy University was brand new. So we were actually the first group of students that I live in the boarding schools. So I, I don't like aging myself, but that's what I've done, exactly that. But, um, and I went in there and there were beautiful buildings and beautiful dormitories. And that was very, very exciting. And so mm -hmm. once I got there, um, it was a, a shocker because first there were so many people and, and a lot was expected of me, but again, I knew what I needed to do. So I started mm. focusing on what I needed to do. And the, you know, and um, the university process um, had its ups and downs because 
unlike in the United States where the classes are smaller and that interaction between the professors is real. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was growing up, I remember my first class had 700 students. I could hardly hear <laughs> what the professor was saying at the, you know, at the bottom of the auditorium because I could really? not even so far away, you know. Uh -huh. And I also remember, like, you know, some experiences, like, for instance, yeah, you can get books everywhere. There are libraries and there are resources. But I remember we were sitting, you know, we, we were waiting. We had to wait for a book. We had three books, three sets of books uh, in mm -hmm. one of the courses. And we had to line up. And I remember my slot, 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., <laughs> What do you mean? Yes, we only had three of those books and you had a whole bunch of students doing that particular course. And we only had three books. And mm -hmm. so you had to go to the library and, and put, you know, uh, write your name under your slot to make sure mm. that you are awake at that time. So you just drink all the tea you can and just wait. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh. This is what part of us growing up. And then, you know, during those, we were, you know, I was in the group that went to NYS. And, and so we went to the NYS. That was also very interesting. Um, How in was the, the NYS? Was it as bad or as good? Yes, it was. <laughs> it, wasn't bad. Uh -huh. it was It was very tough. Mm hmm um, what what's the hard, toughest experience for you? The hardest experience at NYS, yeah. At NYS, um, mm -hmm. I think one one of the saddest things is when we had to, you know, we we had to be punished. Let's say maybe the bank did something, and you are punished. And I remember one time they they punished us and they gave us different activities, and we had to clean with a toothbrush. No way. Imagine the surface area. You're just scrubbing, scrubbing, scrubbing. It seems like forever. Um, mm -hmm. There's one time that, you know, you we had to plant uh, flowers. You unplant them and plant them. I think I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yes. I'm very serious. But I think for me, the worst was, you know, you we used to wake up like 3 a.m. We had our boots shining. You can you can see your face on the, you know, on the boat. And you carry your big, huge bag. And then we go running up the hills in Naivasha mm -hmm. in at 3 a.m. And it is cold. And then when you get back to the barrack, you get ready. You know, there was no hot water, so it's just cold water. And so you get ready to eat breakfast. But when they serve the breakfast, they would have a big, huge metal cup and mm -hmm. on the table, and they would put the bread on top of the tea. So by mm. the time you came to drink your tea, your bread sunk into the tea and the condensation. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I don't even have tea, and you don't want to eat this blob of food that's in a cup. And so you just mm -hmm. okay, I'm hungry. 
<laughs> and after that, you have to do a few other errands. You have to march uh, for in the morning, and you you can't faint. Also, it was it was interesting, but it also made us really really strong. Mm-hmm. We learned yeah, how to. I, I think it was important, you know. Even as we went to university, we were toughened up. We were not, you know, we're not whining and crying. Or that. no, we were just tough people. In our mm. own way. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. But would you let your children go through NYS? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think at that time, for whatever purpose it was, it was good. Mm-hmm. But just like any other very traumatizing experience, it can have various ways in which it impacts people. Mm-hmm. So some people were completely traumatized some people are able to handle it um some people are just it was fun so it just depends on the individual yeah but for me i specifically did not see what what the purpose was so mm-hmm. half the time i thought oh my god why am i why do i have to chase a goat around and try and catch it so i can as <laughs> a punishment really you know but <laughs> yeah thinking this is just toughening us up okay but you know for me it didn't make sense yeah you know and um and and i think you know sometimes for a lot of people who i mean i still talk to uh, you know a lot of my friends who went through it and i think for a lot of people who went through it they did not necessarily feel that it um benefited them in any way mm-hmm. other than just making them really angry you know, mm-hmm. um, but and I always think about the positive part, which is you can for you, you know, we created a lot of friendship, we found good, you know, good friendships, we were doing things together, we we're looking out for each other. So that is the other aspect, you know, not everything is bad, you always learn something else. And so yes. Yeah, with that group, like for instance, my barrack, we were very much more united. We would do things together. We would wake each other up so you don't get in trouble. You know, when they come waking you up, and if your friend is over there and they're sleeping, you would nudge them and make them make sure they wake up, get in trouble. So you had that unit created, you know, out of. I think that was also a positive part of the experience. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. So now you finish university. And you when you're finishing university, what was your plan? Was it to go and teach? Or what had you thought? Then what happened? <laughs> yes, I have always been an educator. I've mm-hmm. always loved being an educator. And I remember I was amongst the first one of the youngest ed- in Nairobi. Um because I was, I didn't even have my ID when I started teaching, but I expressed so much interest in teaching uh, the low-income kids who are in my, in you know, one of the schools in my neighborhood, that they did allow me to go ahead and apply for the position because I said I want to do this. Um, and I remember we used to um, in that school. I was part of the group that we introduced um, a session where in the CPE and the kids those days it was called the CPE. And the kids in our neighborhood were going through a really difficult time, you know, just mine and one by one by closer, you know, Maringo and et cetera. Those, those students, either their living conditions were not up to par 
And so they couldn't really read at home. There was a lot going on. So we decided as a team of teachers to have uh, in those three days when they are doing their CPE, to actually bring the kids into the school and provide a sleeping situation in the school where they can mm -hmm. study like a, like a boarding school, but where they could study and do the exam and eat the, uh, as well. So uh -huh. uh, you know, a bunch of us as teachers decided to do that. And that was really very, very uh, essential because most of these kids could now be able to sleep and eat without you know, having to worry about what chaotic situations they were in at home. And they, they excelled. So that is where my, my, you know, my need to work with communities that are disadvantaged began. So mm -hmm. I would work with those groups and um, I would always be there. And would, as educators, we would actually st stay in the school for the night and watch the kids. So we actually kind of protected the kids. So mm -hmm. that's, when, yeah, that's when I started doing that. And after that, I, you know, I went into the school system. When I finished university, I started being an educator. But I remember they... They, you know, Kenya, they would send you, I do not know, TSC would send you like some strange places. So they sent me like high school almost in the semi desert. I don't even remember where the place was. And so I just said, I'm not going, I'm not going to the semi desert. <laughs> and I found myself um, at school in a, pri a, a private school. Mm. And that's where I began to grow. So mm -hmm. So I have been an educator. This is almost my 30th year as an educator. Um, of course, you know, other things I'm doing, but um, I educated kids across the board um, and, you know, regular students. And then I began my journey with the special education children prior to coming into the U.S. And that became mm -hmm. my focus of um working with uh, the disadvantaged and marginalized groups. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, what so now that you've set, started setting foot and building, establishing yourself in Kenya, mm -hmm. what made you decide that you still want to relocate and uh, probably get more experience before you come back to Kenya and help Kenyans rather than yes. just staying and continuing be like building a foundation or something? <laughs> yes. Um. I remember one time I, I was working in this private school and there was a student and that student was what people would refer to as odd. But I was very fascinated by what he was doing because at that time he was, he, he, he illustrated of an engine and I will never forget because it's still in my mind. And I looked at this and oh my God, did he just draw him? But he was not that old. And so from then, I started developing that interest towards children with disabilities and in specific children with autism. So when the opportunity arose for me to move over to the United States, we won the green card. And then we're thinking, OK, we want to give our children an opportunity to, you know, to be who they would like to be because the opportunities are greater in the U.S. So we decided to leave um, Kenya. But I knew that is when I wanted to purposefully go full-fledged into my area of interest. So that is when I started my journey with special education. Mm -hmm. So I went to school, I got a master's in it. 
And, you know, I looked at uh, different groups, including the severe and profound groups. Then I got a PhD in special education. So my journey all along has been, let me find out what goes on in special education in the United States, because I know they have the resources and the expertise and everything else that they do, you know, that, that is required to empower the teachers and take that expertise and be able to bring it back home. Mm, After seeing yeah. several children, when I was growing up, there was, and even, you know, people who had disabilities in my neighborhood, and I would see how they struggled, or I would go to the city in Nairobi, and I was, I, you know, and that's when I knew this is my passion because my heart would break as I saw them crawling all over the streets. And I knew it wasn't a, a fault of their own. Mm. And so I wanted to be able to come, bring that back to, United, to my country, which is Kenya, to bring back to Kenya the expertise and the, you know, and the, just the different ways of empowering those families and teachers and whoever is working with these families. So mm -hmm. that has been my goal throughout, you know, uh, this whole process. And was the relocation easy for you and your family? It wasn't. Everybody says, oh, if you get a green card and you just go to the U.S., oh, you just be okay. No, it's not. Um, it's tough because you are leaving um, a very stable job and a very stable income to go into a place where you're not stable. So you are actually beginning from scratch. If you mm -hmm. are an educator, for instance, you are a teacher in Kenya, when you come here, you don't automatically become a teacher. You have to go through the process. You have to mm -hmm. be certified because in the United States, everybody is certified, in, especially if you're in a professional field. So you mm -hmm. can't come from Kenya and then just, it's not going to work. So you have to go through a system where they look at your paperwork and then um, they, they look at your degrees and then figure out what those degrees would look like if they're in their un university, you know, a translation of your degree uh, requirements and courses into the American system. And then you have to take some exams and additional courses to get a teaching certificate. And once you get a, the teaching certificate, um, then the process is a lot more easier because then you have stability. But it was easy because when I was in Kenya, I was used to a very comfortable life and you know, my, and now I had a, a child and I, and I had to figure out what I was going to do with my child. So, um, so it, was, it was tough in that aspect. And did you have a home already there waiting no. for you? Oh no, <laughs> uh, homes are really hard to come by in the States. But again, like I said, it's really important when you have a vision. Um, mm. I, I, I always believe that you have to look at the bigger picture because if you, if you look at the bits and pieces that make the bigger picture, then you're going to get frustrated. But you have to say, okay, what do I want to be? Where do I want to be in 10 years? So mm -hmm. that's one thing I decided I wanted to do. I looked at the vision and you know, people, you know, people always laugh and say, oh, vision boards don't work. They do work because you allow yourself to see yourself where you want to be in 10 years or in 20 years. So in my vision, 
I knew I needed to, in 10 years, I needed to get out to make sure I have a house, to make sure I have a full-fledged profession. So in so doing, I didn't see the little things that were sometimes would impact me, but I didn't see them because I wanted to get my vision. Mm. And so in that aspect, it took me maybe, it took my husband and I about maybe two years and we already had our house. Um, and then knowing education is really critical. So we, we made sure that we were getting into the right school districts so that our kids could go to the right school districts and, and, you know, and making sure that we understood the system works in the United States. Because sometimes mm-hmm. I feel a lot of people don't know how the system works. And so they are not able to empower their children or even advocate for their children. So being able to advocate for your children and say, this is what I want and this is what's best for my kid. And being able to go into those meetings in the schools and say, this is, I don't like how this looks, is is not, you You are not um being insubordinate. You, you are actually... Your, the process is important for you as a parent because your priorities once you get to the United States change. The parent becomes a part and parcel of the process. Mm-hmm. Because I remember when I was growing up, uh, unless I brought, if, if I failed, which luckily I didn't, um, I would get in trouble. If you, if you fail in school, you probably get in trouble at home. Um, yeah. but, but when you're here, you have to help your kids understand why it is important to do well. Mm-hmm. To understand the importance of that education and then to understand you as a parent, why it is important that you become a full advocate for your kid. Mm-hmm. And, and in so doing, then you learn everything that comes with it. You learn to college, you learn how to get your kids into the, the different you know, schools and, and the process of enrolling, the process of you know, understanding how classes go. If your kids are in a gifted program, what are you going to do? If your kids are in a regular program, what are you going to do? If you know, what programs are there in the schools that you can enroll your child into and therefore support them in that process? So Mm -hmm. the the role of the parent is very, very different once you get to the United States, because you're Mm -hmm. not only uh, you're not only, you know, looking you're looking from outside, looking in, you are part of that process. And if you don't make the conscious effort to make sure that all these things are in place, then things are not going to go the way they should. Mm -hmm. So that is a different, uh, you know, frame of mind it's a different paradigm in in comparison to where we come from yeah you know because even when you know when you're growing up i remember my my could only they used to come on maybe once a time when they have they had visiting there or something like that um here we don't have boarding schools per se you know they are boarding schools. boarding schools are extremely expensive but regular school is not a boarding school so your kid is coming home every day and your kid is a part and parcel of your day-to-day runnings. So you mm-hmm. have to learn how to incorporate all that, which is very different from, you know, from home. A lot of the kids at home, once who are Mephika standard eight, they can go to boarding school. So they don't have to worry, you know, about how they're doing in school because you're not even there, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mhm. And so even with that you talked about you relocating one of the main reasons was you wanted better for your kids. Yeah. So have you seen this betterment come to life? Have you seen opportunities open for them that otherwise they wouldn't have if they stayed in Kenya? And two, mm-hmm. have they faced any prejudices and you having to stand up for them especially now that they're not native so obviously probably they face challenges that probably you didn't even expect but have to have had to navigate through them yes i mean i have definitely you know appreciated the fact that i came here and you know sometimes people say oh but i the smaller picture is not the issue is the bigger picture mm-hmm. the fact that they came here they have had more opportunities they are in very good university programs and mm-hmm. doing extremely well in those university programs and and excelling and i always believe if maybe i was in kenya i would probably not have afforded that <laughs> you know if i was going to still be a teacher i was not going to be able to afford taking them to all these top top you know top schools mm-hmm. so by coming here that opportunity was awarded to me yeah. and therefore i have been excel in their different fields and yes they do encounter issues because you see there are children almost like a donut hole because they are children who are neither kenyans nor americans well they are americans by birth but they expected to have to deal with the cultural version of kenyans yeah so sometimes you know they'll be like oh i have to be a kenyan you know and <laughs> oh i have to go for all these meetings you know that we always have with as kenyans as as, as an ethnic community so we have mm-hmm. had to it's it's been um an uphill task also teaching them the cultural values which they actually like you know and mm-hmm. i in the opportunity we have we bring them home but um it's also very very difficult for them to be a part of the two worlds yeah so so our goal is to help them understand each of these cultures are important they each have their own values so they don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to feel like oh my god now i have to be a kenyan no you just have to understand their values and they will guide your 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 thought and your actions and that yes. way you can make a good judgment you know mm-hmm. cuz being that we are more of um you know as an african culture we are more of a collective society so um when i remember when i was growing up if i did something and my neighbor knew and they would tell my mother so yeah. your community watched over you but in the united states you have what you call an individualistic and therefore because it's very individualistic um you always feel like somebody's not watching over your kid because there's that culture of you know you're on your own in that corner and I'm on my own on this corner so by allowing them to experience our culture which is a lot more collective and you know and and um i know like you know one one of the major fields that i work on is refugees and yes and working with refugees and refugees with disabilities i have seen the importance of that you know the cultural ethnic social support because not all it it has its both negative and positives by the way you know but also 
when you think about it in the long run, it provides that basic support that those families need when they need, you know, to have someone to fall back to. So it's always something that we teach our children. Your culture is important, even though it doesn't look like this culture, it's still important, but it will elevate you in the long run. Mm. Yeah. And now that you've talked about refugees, tell me a bit about that, about mm-hmm. how you start working with refugees and what have been some of the most life-changing experiences for you, especially working with this special group of people. Yeah, so one, um, I, I don't know if you know that, you know, according to the World Health Organization, over 1 billion people who have a disability all over the world, that's about 15% of the world these different people experience a lot of stigma and marginalization. So what I have been doing is bringing that awareness about what does stigma look like here and out, you know, because what happens is that when refugees move into, let's say, for instance, the United States, they are not familiar with the system and how the system works. So they are coming from a system that barely recognizes their their inclusion. A system that has mm-hmm. got a lot of barriers. It has, you know, barriers to do with attitudes and how people refer to them. It has barriers to do with uh, physical nature, how they access buildings, or if they have to go somewhere, there are no rooms. You know, they don't have special toilets and etc. You know, and they don't have furniture, for instance. They they're coming from a system that also has barriers in terms of finances. They don't have programs that actually support their, their need for, you know, for such different services. And they're also coming from, you know, from barriers which, which are full of communication issues that go on between, you know, in terms of language, in terms of accessibility and everything else. So my goal has been to work with these families and provide and empower those families. So, uh, my dissertation was actually on the refugees, and I came up with a whole, you know, bunch of different um, resources and ways to work with them. And I'm in the process of working with uh, even a postdoc on that. But um, those policies that we have at home have got, oh, mm-hmm. even in undeveloped countries, where we see them as more inclusive than exclusive. Mm. So one of the things that I am actually promoting, I wrote a a book on the refugee child so that people can see that journey that those children go through so that it can kind of bring out the empathy, which is the number one thing that we need as a community. When you're empathetic, when you are kind, when you understand that it is not because of what somebody did, but it's because these different disabilities have either, you know, a genetic component or they have a neurological component. It has nothing to do with somebody else. Then that way you begin to include them in a community. And inclusion is not just saying, oh, you know, you have a disability or come on and stay with us. It's understanding what their needs are and providing mm. those services that support their needs. Mm. So, so that's why this, you know, this topic is really important to me. And, um, I basically looked at different perceptions and how different people perceive a disability and how that can impact how we reference people with disabilities or how we, you know, talk about people with disabilities. For instance, back home, you hear people say, you know, disabled and, and using terminologies that 
you know, we as a community of people who empower people with disabilities don't believe in, you know, instead of mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, that one has is an autistic child. You say that is a child with autism. It's mm. person first, then the disability. So mm -hmm. you, you don't look at um, the person and say the person, that one, um, you know, Down syndrome child. No, you say that child has Down syndrome. It is a child first, then the mm. Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that person first, then they, they, they become people. They, yeah. they begin to develop the empathy because they are now something that you can relate to or someone that you can relate to. Yeah. So I and I know sometimes I, I you know I sometimes will get so upset when I'm sitting somewhere and someone says that I say oh my god and then I say well then my husband says you know they don't really know what you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know and 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 that's what I want to be able to bring out that when you begin to see someone before you see their disability. Mm. then they become people to you. So mm -hmm. when you see someone crawling in the streets, you don't see, you know, and they're begging you for something, food or whatever. You don't see them as that person who's really bothering you and, you know, that, you know, that disabled person over there. No, you see them as a person who has disabilities and may need your help. Yeah. So that way you begin to include them. Mm. And they become a part and parcel of you. Yeah. And I, yes. And I and I think that would then we change our internal processing of people as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, so even just it doesn't even have to be disabilities, it has to be like even poor children, you know, how they are perceived. They they're mm -hmm. just poor. So we don't see the child, we see the poverty before the child. Yes, yes. So that particular child almost has no hope, like they will amount to anything. And that's why I would work in those communities where we would support the families and bring them to school, you know. And even when, for instance, like when we go to Kenya, every time we go to Kenya, I take my children to Kibera. They go to Kibera and they, they support programs over there. They go and see where actual people who have difficult times come from. It's not only to show them that they have difficult times, but it's also to show them that there are people who are happy. And I remember one time I took my daughter to Kibera and she said, you know, mom, these people are always smiling. And I said, that's what I wanted you to see. Mm. That at the end of the day, they are just people. They smile and they have emotions in spite of their situation. Mm. So... Mm. For so for someone who like me who really truly supports inclusion, that is that is the number one goal in my journey. You know, into expressing what you know all the different things that I want to bring forth and and you know and become a part of. Mm. Yes. And for you, is the journey getting easier with the more knowledge you know, or does it get harder? Because the more you know the probably the more challenges you tend to see. So for example, if Billy was mm -hmm. in such an environment, he wouldn't see some of the things yes. you see. Yes. So oh, is it getting and easier I, or harder? Mm. For me, it gets easier because mm -hmm. it allows opportunities for change. You see, you will mm -hmm. not be able to see change if you don't know there is a problem. Yeah. 
You see, if you don't know there is an option or an alternative to that situation, then you don't see that change coming. Yes, yeah. you encounter the barrier. Truly see the barriers. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it also allows you to see that it's doable. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when the families come, you know, from they come to the United States and they are just like, oh, my God, what is this system? And I've had, you know, families that are still at home with a child with disabilities and they don't know what to do. I love being part of their navigation process mm. to help them see that this is not home where you have to stay with your kid at home. Here, mm-hmm. you can take your kid to school and in a normal school. They can be mm. included with other students and they can get the supports that they need. Mm-hmm. If they can't speak, they can have opportunities for communication and speech and therapists, uh, speech and language therapists. They, if they, they have issues with mobility, they can have uh, physical therapists. Then, you know, and those come as part of the school services. Yeah. And they are not outside the school. So you're not having to worry about the financial aspect of the money or, or so sorry, of the resources, because those are clearly available to you. Yes. As someone who's taking a child here to school. So that is the part that I truly enjoy to do. But the you know, the harder part is also navigating our own perceptions of disabilities. Mm-hmm being able to overcome that. So I am currently writing a paper on that. And, and you know, the, the idea is to, and therefore allow those particular families and those particular children to see them themselves on a higher level. You know, one thing that I always, you know, I remember when we were growing up, used to have these students who are in class and they would never get anything. <laughs> You know, you people will be like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. He doesn't understand anything. He doesn't understand math. He doesn't understand. And that child will probably sometimes, you we there were students who would be repeating a class until they are too old. Mm-hmm. They can't even exit standard seven. They are old and, you know, and they are 15. Mm-hmm. Those, those days I would, you know, when other kids are getting it and, Others don't get it at all. And then the ones who don't get it at all, they they seem to be just marginalized. And that would kind of concern me. But now having worked here, you know, having worked here, being a professor, now I know the difference. The difference Uh is that they, they have specific learning disabilities. Yes in reading, it could be in math, it could be in writing, but there is there is some processing issue that is going on that is beyond their control. So mm. they need someone who can adjust and help them achieve and target where the problems are. Yes. And address those problems. Yes. So in other words, coming here enlightened me and now I'm able to see kids in all aspects and see where are their strengths and where are their weaknesses yes and how do we address those strengths and weaknesses instead of you know 
for instance, a child can't get anything and they would just get a beating and beating a beating. Because I remember when I was growing up, we got beatings all the time. I'm not going to lie, but that was the truth. And if you, if you don't remember something or if you fail in some math questions, you would get in trouble for it. But sometimes yeah. it was the, the process of teaching it. Other times it was just that particular child did not understand it. And no matter how often you beat them up, they still don't understand it. So yes. th that, that is the difference when you understand why certain situations occur, why certain children have difficulties in certain subjects in certain classes, then you're able to address that from an educator's point of view. Mm, yeah. So with the right tools, and the right tools being Part and parcel is the knowledge, the understanding mm -hmm. as to why they are where they are. Yeah. That will help you to support them. Because you I, you know, I cannot educate you if I don't know what I'm doing. Yes. But if I understand the reason why you're coming from where you're coming, and that is not just understanding from the blues, you've had several assessments done on you, and you know, and those are have shown us these are your strengths, this is your processing strength, these are your processing weaknesses, then that all you know creates an opportunity for growth. Yeah. Yes. I even remember in an episode we talked about it with my guests where we were just saying we were reminiscing about how teachers would even make fun of such students and mock them yes. and even put them down just because they couldn't mm -hmm. understand a concept yet. Yeah, if a, a child didn't intentionally decide to not understand a concept, if they have the choice, they definitely also want to understand like everyone else. But just would make it would taunt them till some would even cry in front of everyone else, you know. I Which remember, would be sad. Mm -hmm. and I think it's really very sad, and that's why I said when people don't understand the origin of that disability, because it is a disability. Nobody chooses not to understand stuff. Mm. Nobody chooses to be the bottom of their class. Yes. I mean, maybe you can have an exceptional, you know, an exceptional person who decides, oh, I just don't want to go to school and I'm just going to fail. But nobody truly chooses to fail. Mm. So as an educator, it becomes my duty to figure out how can I help this child succeed? Yes. And that's, the, you know, like in the United States, that's big. They, they will not, you know, here, we don't even blame families. Mm -hmm. It's your responsibility as an educator to figure out why this kid is not doing well. Yeah. And to devise a plan to figure out what kind of interventions can you apply to support this particular student. Yes. So here in the United States, there are what we call tier processes, which is mm -hmm. a process by which a child who's having difficulty will go through the different steps. And the teacher will target the specific need and they will continue on that until they are not able to assist them. So, you know, there are those kids who will eventually end up with special education, but it's because within the tier process, they have not been able to, to, you know, to help them grow. So they're not seeing any growth. 
But if a kid is seeing growth, that means that particular educator has changed their strategy of teaching. They have different strategies to teach that particular topic. And therefore, now the child is beginning to understand. And I mm. think that's where a lot of kids used to be when we were growing up. They yes. could have understood it if they had the right approach. Yes. If they had the right strategies. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's as simple as that. You know, yeah. And if they don't get it, instead of taunting and laughing and beating, I mean, oh my God. When I see some of the you know some videos on and off, and I'm always thinking to myself, no, no child wants to fail. Yeah. And I think that's where the shift, the paradigm shift of educating, has got to change. Yes, that's you know, very true. It has to change. We have to now begin to see I'm not all powerful up here, but I am part of the growth for this child. So therefore, my job is a facilitator so that I can help this child grow to achieve this goal. Mm. But the taunting, like you said it, I saw it all, the taunting, the laughing, the beating. And I used to know in my heart there has to be yes so even as you wind up what would you tell mm -hmm. an educator listening to this and mm -hmm. two do you think kenya is ready for these reforms do we have the resources are we just sitting on a gold mine do you think kenya is ready for this in terms of changing i i, I believe it's it's a lot to do with changing your perception of how you internalize those processes, changing your perception. And, you know, what is it that you want to achieve? What is your vision for the education process, for instance? Are you going to change your strategies of teaching? Yes. Teaching is a very difficult job. You know, teaching is a very difficult job, but it's you have to learn how to develop the strategies so that you you present the information in a much more diverse way. We have a program, not really program, but it's a, it's a way of looking into teaching, uh, one of the pedagogies of teaching, which is the universal design for learning. So you look at teaching, and instead of seeing that teacher who's just writing on the blackboard and the kids are just spitting out what they have to say, you create opportunities for this uh, students to show that they understand the information in various ways. Not just doing a test, let's say for instance, just doing a test, they would they would have you know different ways of presenting the material. They can present it like a video, etc. So you are looking at different aspects of teaching as a group of teachers, and then devising many other ways of you know. Uh, definitely representing the material and showing the students what they need to learn in from different avenues. So you can use yeah. videos, you can use PowerPoints, but there is potential. Mm. Mm. And, and that's why I have hope in Kenya. I really do. Uh -huh. And I have hope in the field of, of uh, disability because the yes. more knowledgeable we become, of the strategies and ways of doing things, the easier it is going to become.
but we yes. have to have a starting point. And the starting mm. point is where you say, well, this is what our perceptions are. This is where we are truly looking at yourself and reflecting on what you really believe in. Because our beliefs create a whole, you know, a whole box of biases. You know, mm-hmm. when you have a bias about something, then you already have a preconceived notion about the topic. But if you come out and say, this is my biases, well, this, these are my biases, sorry. These are my biases. And therefore, because I am reflecting on them, then I can see where I need to grow. And yes. in the process, you learn how to interact with those, you know, or different children in their different levels and strengths and abilities. Yes. So thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I think we need to have a part two because you need to go more in depth and tell us more about all this. And tell us about the books you've written, what plans you have for Kenya, now that you've Mm -hmm. surveyed rounds you've done, your plan to your postdoc. So obviously, someone said to whom much is given, much is expected. So expecting for you to come back and help us reform our education system and help these children who who are with disability, these educators as well, who don't know where to start, yet they have the passion, but the reforms mm-hmm. and policies in Kenya are not allowing them to do better. So yes. I'll ask the listeners to tweet at us at the Bushera Pod, follow us at the Good, the Bad, and Bushera, and tell us what they've learned about this episode, some of the things they'd love to see Dr. Lucy do, some of the mm-hmm. things they'd love us, even as a podcast, to partner with Dr. Lucy when she comes next to Kenya, to do for refugees, for children with disabilities, have a lovely week ahead, folks, and cheers. <laughs>